five, four, three, two, one. This is Paul Schrader. I'm talking to you about Taxi Driver. That's a film I wrote. I did not direct. And so uh, whatever comments I have, you know, uh, are not really from inside the director's vision. This um, process that Marty used at the beginning was called Kimtone at the time, and uh, he uses it here at the very beginning, and then uses it again for the very last shot. And that was intended to show that the the film was a loop, and that it that it ends where it began and the whole thing is going to sort of happen again. You know, uh, people have asked me, uh, you know, what happens at the end? And I said, well, what happens at the end happens at the beginning. Only, you know, the next time around, I think, I don't think Travis will be so lucky. How do you answer that? So what do you want to hack for, Bickle? I can't sleep nights. There's porn out there just for that. Yeah, I know. I tried that. I, I think I read a book, Reminiscences of a Taxi Driver, uh, not that title, but something to that effect. But in fact, uh, uh, as Marty very quickly pointed out to me, after he read the script that uh, was full of inaccuracies. I think I had uh, 6th Avenue running downtown when in fact it ran uptown. And I had the cabs different colors when in fact they were all yellow. Um, that didn't really um, matter to me. Uh, I was living in Los Angeles at the time and it was set in New York simply because you needed a city where the cab was uh, essential to the life of the city, which it wasn't in L.A. When we were trying to make it, there was some difficulty getting financing, and there was talk at one point of doing it in Chicago. And uh, the argument against doing it in Chicago was that, uh, metaphorically, the taxi just doesn't have the force in Chicago that it does in New York. 
extra job? That's sort of what I was wearing at the time. I was wearing uh, uh, Western shirts, uh, cowboy boots, jeans, and a, um, a leather um, uh, marine jacket. The one they use in the film is, is cloth, but the one I was wearing was a, a, that sort of tough leather kind of thing. And so uh, it was just, you know, what I was wearing. The, uh, the secret of characters like this is that they just appear. They're sort of like avatars. Uh, I, I love this dissolve right here. When I first saw this dissolve, Marty showed it to me, I, thought, I just thought, wow, that is so fabulous. Um, but they just appear. You get sort of glimpses of a kind of backstory. He's wearing a, a jacket uh, that has King Kong Company on it. In that shot, Marty adds a um, Vietnamese flag. And you get some sense of his parents and what it, uh, what makes these characters interesting is that they're absolutely real, they're absolutely genuine, and they just appear. And you have to try to puzzle it out how they got to the point where we are now finding them. Six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. It's a long hustle, but it keeps me real busy. I can take in three, 350 a week, sometimes even more when I do it off the meter. Pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all this scum off the streets. I go all over. I take people to the Bronx, Brooklyn. I take them to Harlem. When I wrote the script, one of the things I was doing when I was drifting, besides drinking, was uh, going to porn in Los Angeles at that time that meant uh, movie theaters. Because they were open all night. They were one of the few things in LA that was open all night. And also, pornography, like alcohol, is a kind of an anesthetic. And it's a, a kind of way to dull you. Out of that, came the porn and the drinking here. Um, you know, one of the many um, really contradictory things about this character, I mean, uh, at one point he appears to be very moralistic, uh, you know, on the other hand, he is um, uh, watching this stuff and having these fantasies. Uh, he talks about purifying his body at the same time he's taking speed. I was looking for a name that would hang in mind and that would be um, part 
romantic and part vulgar. So the Travis was romantic because it conjured up images of travel, traveling Travis. And uh, so I wanted something very hard and vulgar for the latter name. And later he refers to himself as Crinkle, which was a name that I had uh, toyed with. But then I came with Bickle because one, there had been a radio show about the Bickersons. And uh, I knew that name and then, um, and then I had also, in Venice, been living on a street called Bicknell. And so, and Bickle, it just seemed like a, a kind of unpleasant, you know, vulgar kind of name to mix with Travis. Uh, and also, you know, it was, it was iambic, the, the two words. You have any jujubes? I've Of course, at that time, they had to uh, fuzz out the screen in terms of uh, the images. 12 hours of work and I still can't sleep. Damn, days go on and on, and they don't end. All my life needed was a sense of some place to go. I don't believe that one should devote his life to morbid self-attention. I believe that someone should become a person like other people. I first saw her at Palantine Campaign Headquarters at 63rd and Broadway. She was wearing a white dress. She appeared like an angel out of this filthy mess. When they were casting, we were looking for an actress. Uh, we were looking for a Sybil Shepherd type. Sybil's agent, Sue Mingers, called up and said, uh, I hear you're looking for a Sybil Shepherd type. And we, Julia said, yes, it's about, how about Sybil? Yes. Well, you delivered two boxes. I think it's a total of 5,000 campaign buttons. Now, all the ones we have before, and our slogan is, we are the people, and R is underlined. Marty did something very smart here with Albert Brooks that uh, I've tried to do in subsequent films myself, is when you have a minor nondescript character who is really there just for expositional reasons and has no real function, uh, cast a comic because he'll bring some life to it that isn't on the page. Uh, he'll make it come alive just because it's too boring if it doesn't come alive. So most of the stick that Albert does here is Albert's. Uh, Albert was sort of on a roll at that time, uh, uh, and just 
been coming out with some very successful comedy albums. And, uh, and you know, and Marty was real. Uh, when Marty first told me he had cast Albert, I was sort of surprised because, you know, because it's a nothing character. Well, that's the, that's the secret. Cast a comic and a nothing character, and you get somebody interesting. But this, this dialogue here, you know, this is coming up from Albert. I, I don't think this character said anything of interest in the script that I remember. No. Well, put your glasses on. Okay, just a minute. All right. That taxi driver's been staring at us. What taxi driver? That one, the one that's sitting there. How long has he been there? I don't know, but it feels like a long time. Does he bother you? No. You really mean yes, and you're being sarcastic. Oh, you're quick. You're really quick. Well, I try to be real quick. I'll tell you what. I'll play the male in this relationship. I'll go good out and, luck. and tell him to move. And I don't need good luck. Thank you. Oh, yes, you do. You just think you don't. Marty said he wanted to do reaction shots in slow-mo, which is very, you know, not something you normally do because, you, you know, how do you tell the characters in slow-mo if he's not moving? But in fact, a lot of those shots of Bobby are in slow motion, and the only way you can tell is that his eyes are moving a little slower than they should. amount of Times Square stuff, and obviously the character is sort of interested in that nightlife outside the windshield. And so uh, they did shoot a lot in that area. You know, in the script I wrote in the Belmore cafeteria because I had heard about the Belmore, so that that was more downtown. This is a coffee shop right over here on the west side. And, uh, and again, uh, Harry Northrup, who plays a cabbie who I used in Blue Collar out of having seen him in this. He came up with this whole stick about Errol Flynn's bathtub. Now that's Harry, that's not in the, in the script I wrote either. Anyway, whatever the fuck it is, she uses a lot of it, you know? And then perfume, spray kind, and then get this in the middle of the trunk. And this kind of dialogue, this sort of small talk dialogue, uh, 
it, it's better if the actors uh, sort of work it out and 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 you let it kind of improv in rehearsal uh, because when it's scripted it, it seems so kind of false and uh, and also when the actors read it as scripted dialogue they read it false it's much it has much more life when it when it keeps changing from take to take we call on Doughboy because he'll do anything for a buck so uh, so how's it hanging what's that well on the radio, some fleet driver from Bell just got all cut up. Stick up? No, he got cut up by some crazy fucker. Cut half his ear off. Really? It's on 122nd Street. Fucking Mama Land. There's the beginnings of the whole racism theme. There's a racism theme simply because people who feel they're near the bottom of the ladder are always looking for people who are lower on the ladder, and they will find them. And the easiest way to find them is, is, is racially and economically. There's a kind of submerged and not so submerged race hatred in here. Not because he necessarily hates black people per se, but he needs somebody to hate. It's a good thing to have just as a threat. This theme sort of escalated until the very end when everybody he kills in the brothel was black. And, uh, and in pre-production, Michael Phillips came to me and said that they had been talking to the studio and various people, and they were genuinely concerned about having racial incidents because of that ending. And so that's when the pimp, played by Harry Keitel, switched from black to white. And then, of course, allowed Marty to, to have a role for Harvey. Uh, in pre-production, Marty asked me to try to find a prototype for, for this character. And for a couple of weeks, I went on the search. I called it the search for the great white pimp. And I'd go from one neighborhood to another. People would always say, um, oh, yeah, there is somebody I hear. You know, so, you know, go over to Port Authority or wherever. But I never did find the great white pimp. And, uh, and I finally had to tell Harvey, you're going to have to make it up because I haven't been able to find him. I wouldn't light a match. Go ahead. Give it a try. Well, I don't think I could do it. No? It's going to be difficult. I'll give it a try. Oh. I got the, my thumb back for a second, thank God. Just a minute. I can't do it. Well, the guy at the newsstand can do it. Well, I don't work in a newsstand. Anyway, he's probably Italian. No. I'm sure he's not Italian. He's black. Well, if he had been Italian, he might have been a thief. 
I mean, they do that. The mob does that a lot of times. If, 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 they, if a thief screws up on the job, you know, they'll blow his fingers off. I'll tell you something else. It sounds like a joke, but it's true. If they kill a stool pigeon, they leave a canary on the body. Apparently, it's symbolic. Why not a pigeon instead of a canary? I don't know why not a pigeon. Wait a minute. If there is something from a film you really like, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, conformist, Senso, uh, uh, or uh, Salvatore Giuliano, and it's always stayed with you, and then you're, sh you're shooting, and you say, wow, here's a chance to do that shot. Uh, then the, you, you don't feel like you're honoring so much as that you're just reaching in and, and from the history of film and, and grabbing the right shot for the right moment, and you know about this shot because you've seen it work before in another film. Uh, you know, certain kinds of compositions, you know. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's not really... If, you, if you're going to do, let's say, an urban alienation film, sooner or later you're, you're going to come back to Antonioni because he's the one who set the template for those compositions. Charles Palantine, the man you're volunteering to help elect presidents. I'm sure he'll make a good present. I don't know exactly what his policies are, but I'm sure he'll make a good one. You want a canvas? Yeah, I'll canvas. How do you feel about the senator's stand on welfare? Uh, I don't believe the script should have any references to camera angles whatsoever. There's only one camera angle in the script, and that's the uh, tracking shot at the very end. And I put that one in because I thought it was important that we see this crime scene from the eye of God. And, uh, and the only way you could make that point was to put the camera on the ceiling and, and track. And, uh, but I do, not, I do not put in uh, camera angles. I don't think writers should put in camera angles. Uh, if I ever get a script that has camera angles in it, I immediately take them out. And uh, because scripts should work as stories. And, first as dialogue and theme and plot and then then they should work rework be made to work again as images and don't confuse the two tasks even when i write a script even if i know i'm going to direct it there's no camera in it whatsoever it's just what matters theme metaphor plot character, dialogue. Then, when I come to direct it, I look at it as if someone else had written it and said, and say to myself, how can we save this piece of shit? You know, how can we visually make this damn thing come alive? Come on, just take a little break. I have a break at 4 o'clock, and if you're here... 4 o'clock today? Yes. I'll be here. I'm sure you will. Betsy's the name of uh, this girl I had a crush on in grade school, who was one of these girls, one of these uh, big, white, middle American Dutch girls, you know, totally inappropriate for our character. She's talking here about the Palantine character, about names. Palantine obviously is from uh, ancient Rome, you know, Palantine Hill. 
May 26, 4 o'clock p.m. I took Betsy to Child's Coffee Shop on Columbus Circle. I had black coffee and apple pie with a slice of melted yellow cheese. I think that was a good selection. Betsy had coffee and a fruit salad dish. She could have had anything she wanted. 15,000 volunteers in New York alone is not bad. Christ, the organizational problems. Mm. I know what you mean. I got the same problems. I got to get organized. You know, little things like my apartment, my possessions. I should get one of those signs that says one of these. I'm not quite sure how De Niro nailed this character. He was shooting Novacento in Parma, and I had gone to Venice to visit De Palma, who was shooting Obsession. And he asked me to come to Parma, and I came there, and uh, he wanted me to read the narration into a tape recorder, which I did. Uh, I have no idea why he wanted this. I see none of that in this. I, I, you know, his interpretation of this character is all his own. Uh, there are hints in the screenplay of how to do this. You know, character who goes from a scared little boy to an Avenger who has many sides of his personality, but tends to only show one side at a time. De Niro was able to take those kinds of hints about this guy who can go, go from blank to angry and put the, mix the boyishness with the other side. Uh, but the, you know, the, the, that was Bob. And uh, I didn't appreciate it in its fullness until the film was finished because I wasn't there during rehearsals. And I never really did have those conversations with him, uh, even though people may assume uh, I did. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Where are you from? Upstate. That fellow you work with, I don't like him. I, not that I don't like him, I, I just think he's silly. I don't think he respects you. I don't believe I've ever met anyone quite like you. You want to go to a, a movie with me? I have to go back to work now. Well, I mean now. I mean, like, another time, though? Sure. You know what you remind me of? What? That song by Chris Christopherson. Who's that? He's a prophet. He's a prophet and a pusher. Partly truth, partly fiction. Walking contradiction. You're saying that about me? That was a reference in the script. Uh, that song had been a hit the year before. And it was, again, a reference to this, his character, the contradictions. Um, and, uh, and maybe it should have just been cut out of the movie because Bobby did the contradictions so much better than having Sybil mention it. I mean, when I knew this film worked, 
was in the script, there were more, there was more narration about loneliness. And when Marty showed it to me the first time, he had cut out much of it. And I didn't say, I didn't object because I was smart enough to realize the reason those speeches are gone is because we see it. We see the loneliness. We see it every time we see that cab. We see it in Bobby's eyes. We don't need that narration. And I knew the script was going, the movie was going to work. I didn't know it would be commercially successful, but I knew it was going to work as soon as those speeches started to get dropped because I knew the film was now doing it and the script didn't need to do it. And, and, the, problem, and the same thing is probably true about that Chris Christopherson man of contradictions. Bobby's doing that job. She doesn't even need to mention that. But that's left over from things you put in a script uh, that indicate the characters. But if the actors are really good, they do it so much better that you can throw the stuff out of the script. Uh, you know, you always know in the editing process when something is working, when you can pull out dialogue, because uh, you just look at it and you say, I can see that. You know, I can see that this character is frustrated. I don't, he doesn't need to say it. We're showing it. And so, you know, you talk about scripts as templates. If an actor can show you loneliness, that's much better than him telling you about it, no matter who wrote the script. I don't know. You know, I don't follow political issues that closely, sir. I don't know. Oh, well, there must be something. Well, whatever it is, you should clean up this city here, because this city here is like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. And sometimes I can hardly take it. Whatever ever becomes the president should just really clean it up. You know what I mean? Sometimes I go out and I smell it. I get headaches. It's so bad, you know? And they just, like, they just never go away, you know? It's like, I think that the president should just clean up this whole mess here. He should just flush it right down the fucking toilet. Well, uh, I think I know what you mean, Travis. But it's not going to be easy. We're going to have to make some radical changes. Sam Stray. Here you go, Travis. Keep the change. Thank you. Nice talking to you, Travis. Nice talking to you, sir. You're a good man. I know you're going to win. Thank you. Marty got very lucky with uh, Jody. That would have never happened, you know, had it not been for Alice Doesn't Live Here, where he had formed a relationship with Jody and her mother, and so that uh, they trusted him enough to allow her to do this. Tabby, just forget about this. It's nothing. Be cool, bitch. Thank you.
Back to Gene Krupa's syncopated style shortly. thinking maybe, you know, we could listen to it on your record player. Now going back to 40 years of Chick Webb. This is a scene here that is often sort of criticized. And again, it, it goes right to the heart. It's, you know, it's written this way in the script. It goes right to the heart of the contradiction of the character. And, you know, is he stupid or what? He's not that stupid. He knows what he's doing. But he's operating at a less than conscious level in terms of motivation. Basically, what he is trying to do is say, don't you see what a terrible person I am? Don't you get it? Have I really fooled you? Here, let me show you how terrible I am. How could you ever think of liking someone like me? And the pathology of self-hatred and loneliness kicks in. He is able to enable his self-hatred and his loneliness, even if it takes a kind of drastic, idiotic action like this. Where are you going? I have to leave now. Why? I don't know why I came in here. I don't like this. This isn't about her. This is about, look at me. You know, I'm all dressed up and with a white shirt and tie, but I'm really dirty. And this, this is, I, I vaguely remember this being a scene that, uh, that was criticized at the script level. Uh, the same reason it was criticized at the film level, and Marty's reaction being the same as mine was, that's, that's who he is, you know. If you don't dig those contradictions. Taxi! Can I talk to you at least? I mean, won't you at least talk to me? I didn't know you... Look, won't you take the record? I've already got it. But please, please, I bought it for you, Betsy. It's now good, too. Let's go. Can I call you? Jesus Christ, I got a taxi. Huh? Hello, Betsy. Hi, it's Travis. How you doing? Listen, uh, I'm I'm sorry about the the other night. I didn't know that was the way you felt about it. 
Well, I, I, I didn't know that was the way you felt. I, I, I would have taken you somewhere else. Uh, are you feeling better or? I love this shot. I've always loved this shot. I asked Marty why he did this shot. First of all, I love the composition of the three phones. But uh, I asked Marty why he did that shot. And he said it was just so painful hearing Travis on the phone that I wanted to look somewhere else. So he dollies away and looks somewhere else which, of course, is also a very Godardian thing. Now, I forget the name of the film, the famous film, where he leaves the two people at the counter and, and just goes around. And In that case, he leaves them because they're boring and goes and looks out the window for a while. It's a wonderful camera move. Also reminiscent of a film called Serene Velocity. I wonder if Marty had ever seen that. And then tomorrow, the next day? Okay. Uh, no, I'm gonna... Okay, yeah, sure, okay. So long. I tried several times to call her, but after the first call, she wouldn't come to the phone any longer. I also sent flowers, but with no luck. The smell of the flowers only made me sick. The flowers weren't in the script. I mean, they were in the narration. I remember thinking it was a, it was a bit on the nose at the time, but I think Marty wanted them in there so he could burn them later on. You're only as healthy as you feel. You're only as healthy as you feel. Must not have any trouble. Why won't you talk to me? Why won't you talk to me? Why don't you answer my calls when I call you? You think I don't know you're here? Let's not have any trouble. You think trouble. I don't know? You think I don't know? Would you please leave? Get your hands off. Okay, then leave, okay? I just want you to know that I know. No, let's not have any trouble. Please, just leave. This isn't the place to do it. Okay, okay. Take your hands off. Okay, then just leave. Hang on. All right. Just leave. That martial arts thing, that, that wasn't in the script. That was Bobby. And you're going to die in the hell like the rest Come of them. Come on, now. There's a cop across the street. You're like the rest of them. Look, I'm calling the cops. Officer! I realize now how much she is just like the others, cold and distant. And many people are like that. Women for sure. They're like a union. Now, this was going to be played by George Memley, who uh, play, who was in Mean Streets. The guy at the pool hall kept saying, mook, mook. And I used George in um, uh, Blue Collar as well. He was part of a comedy group called the Ace Trucking Company. Well, George had an accident just before this. Uh, he was doing a stunt with a pull rope and a car, and he banged his head. But anyway, he wasn't available for this scene. And Marty told me that uh, he was going to use George Milley, and George wasn't available. And I, I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I, th I thought I'd do it myself. And I told him I thought it was a bad idea. And the reason I thought it was a bad idea was that I liked the scene, and I thought that if he was in it, he would see himself on screen, wouldn't like himself, and he would cut the scene out. And the scene would never make it in the movie. 
which shows you another difference between Scorsese and myself, because that's probably what would have happened if I had directed it. I would have seen myself on screen and cut the scene. Marty saw himself on screen and kept it in. You see the light up there? The window? The light. The window up there in the second floor. The one that's closest to the one that's closest to the edge of the building. The light up in the window. Second story. What, are you blind? Do, do you see the light? Yeah. Yeah, you see it. Good. See the woman in the window? Do you, do you see the woman in the window? Yeah. You see the woman? So I want you to see that woman because that's my wife. But that's not my apartment. The, uh, the function of this scene at the script level was to show that there's two men sitting in this cab one of whom is dangerous and the other whom isn't. And the one that's dangerous isn't the one in the back seat. He's talking, he's getting it out. The one in the front seat, he's real trouble because he's full of these same sentiments, but he can't admit it to himself. There's nothing else, I just, I'm gonna kill it. Now, what do you think of that? Hmm? I said, what do you think of that? Don't answer. I mean, it was clearly a scene with a with an idea attached to it. No, and the idea being to show what Travis is thinking but cannot say, and therefore why he is more dangerous than the guy in the back seat. Bickle was was me, and it was alienated, angry young men. You know, this is, this is a young man's film. It's, and, and in many ways, it's a, it's a kind of adolescent film. It's full of that young anger uh, of, of frustrated boys, you know, full of adrenaline and semen who want somehow to get control of the world or get back at the world meaning their parents and their and the, the girls in grade school and all of those things. You think I'm sick? <laughs> you don't have to answer. I'm paying for the ride. You don't have to answer. <laughs> the scene at the Belmore, again, now this part of it, this is coming up from... Uh, rehearsal this kind of improv stuff uh, I, I I don't I don't know what I wrote in a script uh, I'm sure I wrote something similar to this but uh, you know the fact that they've come up with this makes it automatically better than whatever I wrote because it's just a uh, kind of lifestyle dialogue you know and uh, the danger is that the actors come up with something that they think is so damn clever that it's worse than what you wrote because they're trying to score some points rather than just stay in character. We've got a pursuit of happiness thing, you're consenting, you're adult, but, in, you know, uh, you know, in my fucking cab, don't go busting heads, you know what I mean? God love you, do what you want. 
tell him to go to California. Because out in California, when two fags split up, one's got to pay the other one alimony. The main reason for this scene is the uh, dialogue outside because uh, the, uh, you know, the one time in the film, Travis tries to verbalize something, you know, and this comes right off from the scene where he's heard the character in the backseat verbalize. He's trying to verbalize something, and he goes to one of the few people he, he could actually talk to, you know, and it's such a ludicrous parody again the the whole black motif here it's such a ludicrous parody of of good advice uh, you know it's, it's a sort of a takeoff on all those scenes in movies where the best friend gives you some good advice <laughs> the best friend has absolutely no good advice in fact it's just uh, just blabbing away which is also why i called him wizard because he had no wisdom you gotta things shut you down yeah yeah the best of yeah i got me real down real Just want to go out and, and, you know, like really, really, really do something. Taxi life, you mean? Yeah, well, nah, it's, I don't know. I just want to go out. I really, you know, I really want to. I got some bad ideas in my head. I just. Oh, look, look at it this way. You know, uh, a man, a man takes a job, you know? And that job, I mean, like that, you know, that becomes what he is. You know, like, uh, you, know, you do a thing and that's what you want. I mean, like, I've been a, I've been a cabbie for 17 years. You know? Ten years at night. I still don't own my own cab. You know why? This dialogue is scripted this way. I mean, this is, um, I mean, you know, Peter embellishes a bit, but this is dialogue that ha really has a purpose. It's not filler dialogue. It's always interesting when you write because you want everything to feel real and spontaneous. And, uh, and some dialogue, really doesn't matter. It can be these words or it can be some other words. And other dialogue, it does absolutely matter that they say these words. But when you read the script, both speeches should seem equally spontaneous, even though one is essential and one is not essential. So this dialogue is scripted and, and, and very important. The dialogue that preceded it 
but it's scripted with other words and it doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't know, maybe I don't know either. Don't worry so much. Relax, killer, you're gonna be all right. I know, I've seen a lot of people and... Uh... I know. Okay. Okay, thanks. Looking at this film today, after having made a number of films, you realize how much really tough location work there is on here. parody I put in of Diary of a Country Priest, where the, in Diary of a Country Priest, the uh, priest is dying of stomach cancer, yet he uh, only will eat uh, bread and wine, which only makes him sicker. So my parody of the Country Priest is brandy and cereal. <laughs> and, uh, and had him pour uh, brandy and milk over his cereal. I knew it was good when I first saw it. I didn't know it was as well-directed as I came to realize, you know, because you're just watching it like a, a moviegoer at that point, and, and particularly a rather interested moviegoer because you wrote it. You know, it's, it's only in hindsight that I've that I came to understand how well it was actually made. Not just well made, how excitingly it was made, you know, with a kind of intellectual vigor. The direction in Taxi Driver is the full fruition of, of a directing talent. I uh, was in a, a bar on, on the east side of town. I ran into this girl who was a, a, a working girl, and I started talking to her, the one with the cigarette that just passed by. And I thought to myself, this is the girl. This is her, you know, Iris. That's a camera reference, not a floral reference, Iris opening up and closing down. I met this girl, and uh, I don't remember her name, but her name will be in the credits. Uh, you know, it was what I hadn't been able to uh, catch in the script. It, it was the reality. And so we were all staying at the St. Regis at that time because they were offering us a discount because, believe it or not, it was run down. And uh, I, I took this girl back to the hotel, and I said, look, nothing's going to happen. I'm going to give you some money. But, and you're going to stay on the sofa, but I want you to have breakfast in the morning, and I'll pay you for it. Because I was afraid if, if I let her go, I would never see her again. And I uh, put a note under Marty's door, and I said, look, I found this girl at Iris. We're going to have breakfast at 8 o'clock. Come downstairs. And he did. And we all had breakfast together, and a lot of what 
you see Jodie Foster doing in that scene in the cafeteria coming up, this girl was doing at that breakfast. And that's where that character started to become real, as opposed to a writer's kind of fantasy of, an, of, a, uh, of a young prostitute. So that, to help that out. June 8th. My life has taken another turn again. The days move along with regularity over and over. One day indistinguishable from the next. A long, continuous chain. And suddenly, there is a change. This here's Easy Andy. He's a traveling salesman. How you doing, Travis? He was a friend of Marty and Robbie Robertson in that group. He was sort of cast a type. He was a fellow who uh, could get you things. Stop at a car at 100 yards, put around right through the engine block. There you go. It's a premium high resale weapon. Look at that. I could sell this gun to some jungle bunny in Harlem for 500 bucks. But I just deal high quality goods to the right people. How about that? This might be a little too big for practical purposes. In which case, for you, I'd recommend 38 snub nose. Look at this. Look at that. That's a beautiful little gun. It's nickel plated, snub nose. Otherwise, the same as a service revolver. Oh, yeah, where's this shot from that's coming up? Oh, you know, the, that's, it's from Hitchcock. You know, the across the gunshot, that's a very famous film reference. But when Hitchcock did it, they actually had to build an artificial hand and gun because they didn't have the lenses to do, you know. I think it's, it's Spellbound, but you know, until it could be an, another film. But I, I, I knew I, this is some Hitchcock references. You interested in an automatic? It's a Colt 25 automatic. It's a nice little gun. It's a beautiful little gun. Holds six shots in the clip, one shot in the chamber. It's if you're dumb enough to put a round in the chamber. Here, look at this. 380 Walther. Holds eight shots in the clip. That's a nice gun. And yeah, that's a beautiful little gun. Look at that. During World War II, they used this gun to replace the P38. Just given out to officers. It's interesting when uh, Marty talks about the influences on this film. He'll, he'll mention films. 
Now, I knew he was very interested in Merchant of Four Seasons, the Fassbender film, and then maybe that came through in all the use of gels. I know Salvatore Giuliano is another one. Maybe that came through with some of Michael's night lighting. Marty, you know, probably mentioned to me, you know, a dozen or more films that he was being influenced by, and I'm sure that's only one dozen. I'm sure with Michael Chaplin, he's mentioned a couple dozen more. And uh, sometimes they sort of end up in the movie as a shot or as a lighting scheme or as a sound effect. And sometimes they don't, but their presence sort of insinuates itself into the texture of the film. How about a Cadillac? I get your brand new Cadillac with the pink slip for two grand. June 29th. I gotta get in shape now. Too much sitting has ruined my body. Too much abuse has gone on for too long. From now on, it'll be 50 push-ups each morning. 50 pull-ups. There'll be no more pills. There'll be no more bad food. No more destroyers of my body. From now on, it'll be total organization. Every muscle must be tight. There's a shot, an overhead shot of him lying on his little cot where he looks so small. He says something to the effect of, I do not believe that one should do, dedicate one's life to morbid self-attention, but should be a person like other people, which of course is a complete lie. All he is doing is dev devoting his life to morbid self-attention. But you know, that's what makes interesting characters. Interesting characters lie, and they lie to themselves. Oh, oh the, the famous making of the gun glide. Uh, again, this is a, that kind of Bresonian intensity on a task. Uh, and, and that was sort of in the script, too, that, that whole notion, like in A Man Escapes or Pickpocket or Country Priest, where you really focus in on the minutiae of a task as a kind of spiritual reference to the character and uh, and there was a sort of jokes at the time I remember Marty said that he could have done a uh, an hour-length documentary on the making of the gun glide he had shot so much footage on it those are those boots that I just uh, just gave away
Yeah. Now, what I remember is that scene with Bobby with the guns in front of the mirror, making the gun glide, and then later scene where he says, you talking to me? That's all one scene, all written as one scene. When Marty showed it to me, he said, what are we going to do? He said, I really love that scene, but it just is so long. It's so boring and overdone. And I, but I don't want to cut any of it. And so this, this is my one contribution to the editing of the film. I said, well, why don't you just take the scene of the Secret Service and put it in the middle and bookend the Secret Service with the two gun scenes? That way you can... You don't have to cut the gun scenes. And uh, Marty says, you know, that's a great idea. So that's, that's my one contribution to the editing of the film. Secret Service man, aren't you? Huh? Just waiting for the senator. The reason that scene became so long was because of the target to me stuff came in, which wasn't scripted. In the script, it just said Travis looks in the mirror, plays with his guns, talks to himself. And so I, I, I sort of left it up to the actor to try to come up with something, you know, a little kid playing with guns would say to himself while looking in the mirror. I mean, again, there's a case, that's Michael Phillips with his back to us right there. David Nichols has also worked on the film as Walking Away. Um, the, uh, the, uh, and, but if you script that stuff, it's, it's usually not that good if you say, you know, if you script you know, bang, bang, I got you, or, you know, you can't hide from me. It's not quite that good. And, and then for De Niro to come up with, through things he had known and people he had known, that you talking to me thing, it makes it so much better than if I had tried to write it myself. A secret signal for the Secret Service. Hey, what kind of guns do you guys carry? 38s, 45s, 357 Magnums, something bigger, maybe? Hey, look, uh, if you're really interested, if you give me your name and address, we'll send you all the information. This scene is, is as scripted because, he's, you know, the, the, the attention here is, again, to show how sort of goofy he is when faced with authority figures, you know. You know, when you make a film, as I have done a number of times, about one character who appears in every single scene. You know, like a rabbit hip hop. Fell on jersey. And the hip hop is also in the script. Uh, the secret of doing a film where one character is in every scene is that you make him into more than one character. 
So rather than having four guys in a movie, you have one guy in a movie with four personalities. And so you start breaking him up. In certain scenes, he plays a little boy. Certain scenes, he plays the Avenger. Certain scenes, he plays this. And uh, I don't know how Marty did this with Bobby, but uh, the way I do it with an actor is you just act, actually go through the script, break down the number of personalities this character has, and which personality is dominant in which scenes, and in which scenes uh, are personalities that were dominant in one scene, subordinate and underneath another personality, you know. And uh, so, you know, what De Niro is doing here is, is, is exactly how you do this. If you're in every single scene, you start playing more than one character. What's nice here is Marty is shooting the mirror image. This is the mirror image. As if it's the single. But everything about his face is wrong. The mold's on the wrong side. Everything sort of flipped. I'm trying you. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Oh, yeah? Huh? Okay. Huh? I find it very hard to uh, listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Write an opening if I don't know what the ending is. Now the ending can change this way and that. But uh, I can't get going until I know if I, how it's going to end. Now, you know that's just one opinion. Uh, there are a lot of writers who um, who learn what they're writing about by writing it. You know, it's so interesting watching the darkness of these streets. It's so good. And then when Marty did Bringing Out the Dead, and then they lit everything up, spent $60 million, and, uh, and there's no reason to, no reason to. Travis del Titere, ¿qué pasa? Yeah, man. Okay, shut your fucking mouth and give me the cash out the drawer. Come on. Come on. Let's go. Let's okay, go. Man, give me the goddamn don't cash. Don't shoot. Come I'm on. getting it, man. Well, stop taking so long. Come on. Let me have it. Give me the, give me the bread. This all you got? That's it. Reach in your sock and get the rest. I don't of have any more money, man. Give me the rest of the goddamn That's cash. That's all I got. What you got more. To... Give me more. Reach I'm telling you, I ain't got no money. Reach in your sock. You got more bread. That's it, man. Give me the rest hey. of the fucking bread. Hey. This guy becomes the jiglo, becomes the drug dealer, becomes the walker. Yeah. I, you know, as they 
move on in life and their problems change, you'd like to find different metaphors for them and, and then they become different characters. Listen, I ain't gonna turn this thing. I don't know what I'm gonna do. Don't worry about it, man. I'll take care of it. Give you some money. No, man. Just, just give me that. No, no, man. I'll take care of it. Go ahead. Yeah. Mount that way. I hold that door. Mighty cool. The fifth motherfucker this year. Where about that stuff? Mount. Where about that stuff? Mount. Mighty cool. This is a wonderful sequence, and Marty had to fight Bernie Herman about it. But Bernie Herman said, there is no music in a Bernard Herman film but music by Bernard Herman. And, uh, and Marty wanted to use Jackson Brown in here, which is wonderfully used. And close to the end of the feeling I firmly believe that you can externalize and exorcise personal demons, neurotic pathologies, by exposing them to the daylight of drama. Writing them on a public wall, you learn about yourself and, uh, and you diffuse these evil elements uh, of their power. So I mean, I, I really do think it works. Uh, when I tell people today that I got involved in uh, screenwriting as self-therapy, they find it sort of hard to believe because, you know, the primary reasons for getting in film today are really quite mercenary. Brings not only your wedding anniversary, but also Father's Day and Mother's Birthday. I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact dates, but I hope this card will take care of them all. I'm sorry, again, I cannot send you my address like I promised to last year. But the sensitive nature of my work for the government demands utmost secrecy. I know you will understand. I am healthy and well and making lots of money. I have been going with a girl for several months and I know you would be proud if you could see her. Her name is Betsy, but I can tell you no more than that. Hey, Gabby, you can't park here. Come on, come on, let's go, let's go, move it.
I hope this card finds you all well as it does me. I hope no one has died. Don't worry about me. One day there'll be a knock on the door. It's just one of the little hints in the script uh, of another life. You know, you like to sort of drop in hints to make the the viewer think, but not enough to explain anything. I'm really of the school that uh, the last scene of the movie should play on the sidewalk outside the theater, and the movie should incite your imagination to the degree that you walk outside and, and start talking and arguing about it with someone else. And if a film answers all the questions for you, I don't find it terribly interesting. A lot of people go to movies for just that reason, not to think. You know, go to the movies to blank out. And I understand the temptation of that because, uh, you know, it's a powerful temptation. Same reason you play slot machines. You don't really play to win, you play to blank out. But uh, I, I just don't find those that much of a reason to, to make a movie, to provide people with a narcotic to blot out two hours of their lives. The reaction taxi driver has had, at that time and now, 30 years on, you know, it's not predictable, you know. That's a serendipity at many levels. It's a serendipity that Marty and I and Bobby hooked together at this subject material at that time. It's a serendipity that the movie actually worked. It's a serendipity that it came out in a environment that allowed it to grow. You know, there's no small amount of luck in, uh, when a film uh, has the kind of success that this film has had. She sent me over. I suppose that in the 38 you've got a your son. 38? No. No. <laughs> I'm clean, man. Shit, you're a real cowboy. That's nice, man. It's all right. $15, 15 minutes, $25, half an hour. Oh, shit. Cowboy, huh? I once had a horse in Coney Island. She got hit by a car. Mm. Well, take it or leave it. If you want to save yourself some money, don't fuck her. You should be back here every night for some more, man. She's 12 and a half years old. You ain't never had no pussy like that. You can do anything you want with her. You can come on her, fuck her in the mouth, fuck her in the ass, come on her face, man. She get your cock so hard, she'll make it explode. But no rough stuff, all right?
I'll take it. Hey, man. Take out no money over here. You wanna fuck me? You ain't gonna fuck me. You're gonna fuck her. You give her the money. Yeah. Catch you later, copper. What'd you say? I'll see you later, copper. I'm no cop, man. Well, if you are, it's entrapment already. Huh? I'm hip. <laughs> Funny, you don't look hip. <laughs> Go ahead, have yourself a good time. Go ahead. <laughs> You're a funny guy. But looks are on everything. <laughs> Go ahead, man. Have a good time. Ten bucks. I'm timing you, too. These kind of characters, you know, do become touchstones for people who are mentally unstable. Travis Bickle and uh, Holden Caulfield and Raskolnikov. Uh, my answer to this is that uh, if you ban crime and punishment, you will still have Raskolnikov. You just won't have crime and punishment. Yeah, what's your real name? These people will mutate and find a life form. And occasionally they do it from trash art, and occasionally, mostly they do it from trash art, and occasionally they do it from substantial art. And uh, it's unfortunate, but the price you would pay to keep psychopaths from identifying with fictional characters in movies and then doing bad ideas is basically to ban most everything. Because they will latch on to most anything. You don't remember any of that? No. 
you know, it was just a mixture of animalism and pedophilia and nudity and violence that would set somebody going. So you, you don't really know what sets people going. Uh, you can, so I'm not copying out here. I'm not saying that you, you, we don't have responsibility because we do have responsibility. But, um, uh, you know, censorship isn't the answer either. Uh, when you know you're moving into an area where you are inciting violence, like with the ending of this and then the black-white issue, then you, you should act responsibly. Uh, you know, the film really is interesting because it's so many things at the same time. On the other hand, it's really uninteresting because for the most part, it's pablum for the passive. And that's, you know, not an unintended consequence. That's what it's intended to be. It's supposed to, you know, a lot of film is, is really meant to be a kind of pleasant narcotic to get people out of their lives for a few hours. You know, don't try to confuse those films with anything else. <laughs> I tried to get into your cab one night, and now you want to come and take me away. Is that it? Yeah, but don't don't you want to go? I can leave any time I want to. Well, then what about that one night? Look, I was stoned. That's why they stopped me. Because when I'm not stoned, I have no place else to go. So they just uh, protect me from myself. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I tried. Yeah, I understand. And it means something, really. Yeah. Well, look, can I see you again? <laughs> That's not hard to do. No, I don't mean like that. I, I mean, you know, regularly. This is nothing for a person to do. All right, how about breakfast tomorrow? Tomorrow? What? I get up at about 1 o'clock. 1 o'clock? 1 o'clock. Uh, well, I got a, a thing I don't... Come on, do you want to or not? Yeah, I want... Uh, okay, all right. Okay, one o'clock. One o'clock. Okay. See you tomorrow. Oh, Iris. My name is Travis. Thanks a lot, Travis. So long, Iris. See you tomorrow. Sweet Iris. <laughs> Why do you want me to go back to my parents? 
I mean, they hate me. Why do you think I split in the first place? There ain't nothing there. Yeah, but you can't live like this. It's a hell. A girl should live at home. Didn't you ever hear of women's lib? What do you mean, women's lib? You sure a young girl. You should be at home now. You should be dressed up. You should be going out with boys. You should be going to school. You know, that kind of stuff. God, are you square? Hey, I'm not square. You're the one that's square. You're full of shit, man. What are you talking so about? When I was talking about the, the girl at the St. Regis Hotel earlier, the sugar on the jam on the toast, that was her. And the sunglasses, multiple sunglasses, that was her. <laughs> And of course, the sugar and the jam on the toast is, is strictly, you know, a junky thing. What world are you from? This is a, a perfect example of the thing I was talking about earlier. The three and a half page scene that becomes a six minute scene by the time it's shot and then gets cut back to the three and a half page scene. So I would say this is probably about two-thirds scripted and one-third stuff that has gotten developed in rehearsal and re repetition and repetition. But Marty likes to do that, and one of the ways you know is by the large amount of mismatching you see in his films. <laughs> matching? What is that? Uh, there's not a lot of matching in Marty's films because the actors tend to say and do different things from one angle to another. And uh, he's gotten over that by a kind of jagged sort of shooting editing pattern where matching isn't so important. So Marty will never get into that philosophy of the seamless cut uh, because the seamless cut is always based on a match. And he doesn't have many matches because he keeps in, you know, encouraging the actors to expand and variate and so forth. And particularly when you have a lot of props, like you've got running here, and a long scene, there's no way these actors are going to match. The most obvious one was in uh, Cape Fear, that when De Niro is talking to Juliet Lewis, and the cigar is popping in and out of his mouth at different lengths. <laughs> He's going, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I don't, I never seen a commune before, but I don't know, you know. I saw some pictures once in a magazine. It didn't look very clean. Well, why don't you come to the commune with me? Well, come, come to the commune with you? No, no. Why not? I, I, don't, I don't go to places like that. Oh, come on, why not? No, I, I don't get along with people like that. Are you a scorpion? What? That's it, you're a scorpion. I can tell every time. Besides, I gotta stay here. Come on, why? I got something very important to do. Oh, so what's so important? Doing something for the government. Cab thing is just part-time. Are you a narc? This whole section I've been watching right now is all scripted. Uh, and maybe... Now that I'm watching it, uh, Maybe most of it is scripted uh, because this all seems 
this is all stuff I've written. But I do know that there was a, like a six or seven minute version at one point. No, no, I want you to take it. I don't want you to take anything from them. I want to do it. I don't have anything better to do with my money. I might be going away for a while. Down, East 27 and Nancy, 6 2 and 20. Second call, East 27 and Nancy, 6 2 and 20. Final, East 27 and Nancy, 6 2 and 20. You're just a little tense, that's all. I don't like what I'm doing, sport. Ah, oh, baby, I never wanted you to like There were two scenes that I added for actors. One, I added a scene for Albert Brooks and the and the Palantine character uh, that was cut out. I was opposed to both of these scenes. Marty wanted them written. I, it was very important to me that everything takes place from Travis's point of view. There is no objective reality. The only world we know is the world we're seeing through the eyes of a person with a very sick and distorted perspective. And so when Marty said, I want these two scenes, one for, for Albert and, and another scene for Harvey, I said, no, I, you can't do that because you can only have scenes from that Travis is in or, or that from his point of view. And Marty says, well, I want the scenes anyway. So I wrote them and they shot them. Fortunately, they cut out the one with Albert. But this one, they left in. But Marty then got around the fact that it wasn't, that De Niro wasn't in the scene by stealing a shot from earlier of De Niro in the cab looking up and then cutting and dissolving to the exterior of the building. So it seems like he's sitting outside the building imagining this scene. So the scene sort of works because it feels like this is his imagination what's going on. But still, it violates the rule of the screenplay that there is no world but the world of the taxi driver, and you cannot have a scene that he is not present in. Uh, you, you make your case. You say why it shouldn't be there. Marty makes his case, and then you do it. I mean, obviously, if it comes to a point where you think it is so outrageously detrimental to to the material that, uh, that there's no reason for you to continue working, then it's time for you to leave and time for them to bring in someone else. Church candle uh, homage. And he even and he did want to burn those flowers.
We were both very interested in the fetishistic nature of solitary existence and, you know, how for the solitary person objects, you know, assume importance and become the kind of people you live with. Now I see it clearly. My whole life is pointed in one direction. I see that now. There never has been any choice for me. De Niro's going to show up here in the Mohawk, which was not in the script. The way it was explained to me is that Marty had run into somebody from Vietnam who had said to him, that if somebody thought they were going over the hill, i.e. going to die, they would uh, shave their head in that fashion as a sort of symbol of, uh, you know, don't fuck with me, I'm going over. Um, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> uh, maybe it's something Barty heard and became part of the film, and maybe it became part of Vietnam legend because of this movie, uh, but that's that was the uh, the roots of it, and uh, uh, and of course it uh, has become uh, iconic. And many lives intersect. It is appropriate that we meet here today because these are not ordinary times. We meet at a crossroads in history. For far too long, the wrong roads have been taken. The wrong roads have led us into war, into poverty, into unemployment, and inflation. Today, I say to you, we have reached the turning point. No longer will we, the people, suffer for the few. I would lie to you if I told you the new roads would be easy. They will not be This character, he's not an alien. He's an American kid. You know? You know, we're sitting here overlooking Times Square. Go down there. He's out there. Today I say to you, we are the people, you and I. I've gotten various letters from people who say, you know, no, that's me.
The story here uh, was that uh, uh, the film received a, a, an X or an NR-17 because of the gore at the end. And the gore was, was very, very intended. I mean, in the script it actually describes sheets of blood running down the walls like an expressionistic painting, you know, just totally surreal landscape of blood because this is the psychopath's second coming it is his ultimate pathological fantasy and he is moving into a fantasy world of blood and it had to be saturated in blood so therefore it was very very explicitly bloody the way marty got around or the f studio got around that nc-17 rating was to pull the red out of the blood, to make it brown so it wasn't quite so in your face. That's why he sat, uh, just in order to get the rating. It was meant to be just red, 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 red. But this allowed us to get the rating. And it also figured into Marty's thinking on Raging Bull and doing it black and white. He said, look, if I got into all that argument at the end of Taxi Driver for having all that blood, what am I going to do in Raging Bull when I have, I want his whole face and his torso to be covered in blood? And uh, I think he was leaning toward black and white anyway, but it made the choice to go black and white much more uh, logical because then he wouldn't be dealing with that, um, with that censorship issue of red blood. I think it works perfectly well this way. I mean, I think that uh, if we had it, if we could do it in red, we would probably still prefer, but, not, but now it's history. You can't take the X. Can't get released.
when I was writing a script, uh, right around the time I was writing it, you know, obviously he has come here to die and he has failed. And uh, this is the last foolish gesture of failure. When I was writing this script, a woman took a, or maybe before, no, before, a woman took a shot at Gerald Ford, Sarah Ann Moore, and then Newfeek put her on the cover. And that made an impression on me, because I said, you know, have we reached the point now in our celebrity world that all it takes to get on the cover of Newsweek is to shoot at the president and miss? That one makes you a celebrity. And, um, and that's when, I, thinking about that, I came up with the idea of the irony of this ending. Is he has come to sort of uh, have this glorious death, and he's failed. And in payment for the failure, he gets to be a celebrity. Um, it's a rather cynical uh, approach. This is the overhead shot that uh, talked about. It's a rather cynical approach, but I, I, but I think it's a rather true one. Um, and, uh, and then we balance out the cynicism of making him a celebrity, a hero. Uh, in the words of uh, newspaper clipping, uh, that uh, balance that out by having the ending whereby you see that uh, that it's all going to start again. That uh, that those eyes in the mirror are going to start searching all over. Uh, and next time he won't get to be a hero. You've got them thinking. You don't want to do a drama where everything is wrapped up so tightly that people can't find their own path through the story. Dear Mr. Bickle, I can't say how happy Mrs. Steensma and I were to hear that you are well and recuperating. We tried to visit you at the hospital when we were in New York to pick up Iris, but you were still in a coma. There is no way we can repay you for returning our Iris to us. 
We thought we had lost her, and now our lives are full again. Needless to say, you are something of a hero around. This is uh, Marty's folks here watching their sure TV at their apartment in uh, Little Italy. Back in school and working hard. The transition has been very hard for her, as you can well imagine. We have taken steps to see she has never caused to run away again. In conclusion, Mrs. Steensma and I would like to again thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Unfortunately, we cannot afford to come to New York again to thank you in person, or we surely would. But if you should ever come to Pittsburgh, you would find yourself a most welcome guest in our home. Our deepest thanks, Bert and Ivy Steensma. This guy, Eddie, the owner operator, comes up and says, uh, Hey, I want to swap tires. I said, Hey, these are new tires. Why don't you throw in something else? Like your wife. <laughs> His wife is Miss New Jersey of 1957. That's why the fleet has no spares. Go by, what's that? Come on. Hey, Dolly T. And I think, quite honestly, that the reason the film holds up, other than it's its filmmaking expertise and its performances, is that it really was true. It was true back then and it's true now. Uh, true to that pathology. True to what it was, what it's like to be 23 and male and full of those feelings. I hear Palantine got the nomination. Yeah, won't be long now. 17 days. Well, I hope he wins. I read about you in the papers. How are you? Oh, it was nothing, really. I get over that. Papers always blow these things up. Just a little stiffness. That's all. Marty had asked me what happens at the end, and I said, well, you know, he's not fixed. You know, it's going to all happen again. And I think that's why he then used that repeat shot with the chemtote to, uh, to make the point that uh, this is not a happy ending. This is just the end of one, one go around the track. 
and the the music, of course, uh, reinforces it as well. So you see, it, it just switched during that pan. It just switched over to Kimto and back to the way of the imagery of the opening. Uh, this was Paul Schrader. Uh, uh, thank you uh, for listening and helping keep this film alive. <laughs>